Today on Shtetl, meet Israeli Yemenite musician Ravid Kahalani of Yemen Blues and hear from Sandy Sholema about her activism with Idol No More and her relationship to Aboriginal communities. To listen to this or past episodes of Shtetl on the Shortwave, you can go to iTunes or to shtetlmontreal.com. فوق الجبل قال صغير قبالو بصرتم من قال يا مان بتقول لي سلام كان دلم لا مان مفصرت ولا شي The music you just heard was Israeli band Yemen Blues, and in the second half of the show, we're going to hear from Ravid Kahalani, the lead singer of Yemen Blues. He'll be talking to us about his music and what it means to be a Yemenite Jew. But first, we're going to hear from a woman who has a personal connection to the Aboriginal community. Sandy Sholema is a Jewish Montrealer, a poet, and an activist in the Idle No More movement. Maybe you've been speaking with people in your circles about Teresa Spence and Idle No More. What kind of reactions or conversations are you encountering? Sandy Sholema shares with us her perspective and also the different viewpoints she's come across in the Jewish community at large. My name is Sandy Sholema, and I'm a community organizer, a poet, a writer, and a researcher, and somebody who's been uh, interested in Aboriginal issues from a very young age. Why did you become interested in Aboriginal issues? Well, I'm from a small town just south of Vancouver called Sawasan. And Sawasan is actually a Coast Salish word in the Coast Salish language that means facing the sea. And I grew up next to an Aboriginal community who were, you know, the original inhabitants of that area. And they were living in a small community just outside of the town where I grew up. And I went to high school with a lot of these kids from the reserve. And I became close friends with a young man. And being close friends with him was a real eye-opener for me because I came to see that growing up Aboriginal in Canada is a completely different experience than growing up non-Aboriginal. And this friend of mine was going through a lot of trauma and tragedy in his family life, for example, that the average high school kid is not going to have to worry about. And there was also... Uh, a lot of racism that I witnessed. So I was sensitized, you know, basically as a teenager to a lot of these issues um, because of the proximity that I had to the Aboriginal community there. And so how have you been involved as an activist in Aboriginal issues as an adult? Well, when I first moved to Quebec, lo and behold, the Oka crisis was going on. Um, By the way, the Mohawks of Ganasatage prefer to call it the Siege of Ganasatage. So I will use that term, the Siege of Ganasatage. And um, 
you know, I had already developed an interest in, in Aboriginal issues and whatnot. So I got very involved at that time, and I was at the peace camp uh, that had been set up just outside the Oka Provincial Park that was there to support the Mohawks and also to bear witness like we were going around night and day and sleeping in ditches and whatever, just to bear witness to the, you know, the interactions that were going on, for example, between the Sûreté du Québec and uh, the Mohawk people or the townspeople even of Oka, because a lot of them were being harassed too. So we were there almost like, almost like a human rights watch kind of group. Mm-hmm. And also th- we were there just in case something happened to the people inside Ganasatagi mm-hmm. that we could potentially lend some sort of support in that way and that was also a real eye-opener for me because you know that was the first time in my life that I had seen the tanks of the Canadian army in front of my eyes used against citizens of Canada and I thought to myself well whatever democracy we have in this country Mm. uh, we've crossed that line how, uh, how are you connected to the Idle No More movement? What does it mean to be an activist or to support that movement for you? I just felt a moral imperative as a Canadian citizen, as somebody who was born and raised in this country, who has witnessed you know, many, many abuses against these people. And I should add, too, that in between all of the activism, I became personal friends, not only with the fellow at high school, but you know, I became friends with people in Ganasatage. I spent a lot of time at Ganasatage after the siege was over, becoming friends with people there and hanging out there. So for me, it was not just a political issue. It's also these people are my friends. Right. You know. Okay. So, you know, I somehow, you know, through the miracles of Facebook, <laughs> um, <laughs> hooked up with um, the I Don't Know More Quebec movement and I've been going to their planning meetings and taking part in, you know, deciding where we're going to hold a rally and how it's going to take place. And my main role has been in terms of promoting and publicizing okay. the events, both in terms of social media, but also hitting the streets okay. and handing out flyers and talking to people. And that has been my main, you know, participation so far, as a, in addition to attending the rallies and the and the. Uh, teach-ins and that kind of thing. What are you hoping will happen? What, are, what is planned for the Global Day of Action and what are you hoping will, will happen? Well, first of all, uh, there is definitely an action planned in Montreal for the 28th of January. I'm actually going to a meeting tonight <laughs> where we're going to decide the ins and outs of all of that. So unfortunately, at this point, I can't give you the details uh, about that. So far, the I Don't Know More Quebec movement has been here to support, in support of Teresa Spence, mm-hmm. although we do distinguish that we don't speak on her behalf or we're not, you know, intimately tied with her, but we do support what she's doing. Mm-hmm. And also just to raise the issues and amongst non-Aboriginal people also, mm-hmm. um, to get them more interested and more involved, because as I said earlier, this is not just an Aboriginal issue. This is something that everybody needs to be concerned about. Okay. I mean, obviously, in my own personal take on it, and I can speak for myself here and not for I Don't Know More Quebec, is I would hope that there would be enough pressure that the Prime Minister would agree, and the Governor General, to meet with Theresa Spence and the Aboriginal leadership, you know, that, because, I mean, where is this going to end if not? So, Theresa Spence has uh, has said that she's not going to eat until that happens. Right. I don't understand why couldn't the Governor General just show up at that meeting, but... 
how long will she go if they don't meet with her? Well, I mean, she said point blank that she was willing to die and that she was going to be there, if not physically in spirit, and she was going to join her ancestors. And she said that more than once. So I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen if that happens. I think there could be a real explosion. So as somebody from the Jewish community of Montreal, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's no, we're no different, the Jewish community, than any other Canadian citizen. But how would you recommend or how would you like to see the Jewish community interacting with the Idle No More movement? Well, I, and it's, a good, it's interesting that you asked me that question because so far, although I don't cover every last media you know, coverage of every last minute of Idle No More or Theresa Spence's hunger strike, I have so far seen very, very little implication from the Jewish community, official implication from the Jewish community. I've seen Jewish people that I know at rallies and teach-ins and that kind of thing, which is really great to see. But officially, I have seen next to nothing. And I'm actually quite disappointed in, you know, I mean, there's some hip rabbis out there, you know, in the Jewish community uh, who claim to be for social justice and... So far, I, I have seen very little of that, and I think that, um, that they should get involved. I mean, as you said, Jews are Canadians, too, are, who are living here, and we, should need, we need to be concerned about this. So um, I'm not exactly sure why that's not happening. Do you think that it's the responsibility of somebody from, let's say, not even a rabbi, but from some official institution in the Jewish community to make a statement about this? My personal opinion would be yes. I think that there is an obligation, a moral imperative, as I said that word earlier, to make a statement. But in support of this movement and in support of what Teresa Spence is doing. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, you know, because I've seen a lot of pictures coming through the Internet and whatnot. And a group of Muslims actually went to Teresa Spence's site there where she's holding her hunger strike. And I don't get... The impression these were official representatives of any kind of Islamic institution or anything, but they were clearly there as Muslims and they were praying there as Muslims. And I thought, wow, you know, that's really neat to see that kind of support from diverse people in the Canadian landscape. Mm-hmm. And it would be really cool if Jewish people could sort of at minimally organize themselves at least that much to do some sort of similar action or. Of, of support. Hmm. You mentioned to me that you attend a few different synagogues in the city. Mm-hmm. And how have you been hearing people responding to, to the movement? And how does it jive your synagogue attendance with your activism? Unfortunately, um, some people in the Jewish community, uh, I had an incident at the synagogue that I was attending uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was actually there for a Torah class. And these were elderly people for the most part. And they were very much against the Idle No More movement and were basically, I would say, making fun of Teresa Spence and saying, oh, she's just on a diet and uh, this kind of thing. I said, listen, the Idle No More movement, first of all, doesn't represent Teresa Spence. And secondly, it's about something that has nothing to do with the specific community of Attawapiskat. This is about this ominous bill that's going to, you know, take away the, the... treaty rights and even parts of the Indian Act that, you know, basically guaranteed to the Aboriginal people the use of these resources. 
-hmm. And it's got nothing to do with whether Teresa Spence as as a chief, as an individual chief, was keeping the books properly or not. So I was a bit disappointed, you know, that people were having that kind of attitude. And also just the environmental question as well. You know, we all have to live off of this land either directly or indirectly so we're all going to be affected by it and I tried to explain that to them but they didn't really seem oh but what about the books where's the money they kept on shouting back at me so at one point this was in synagogue it was during a Torah class okay okay yeah it wasn't during the service (laughs) (laughs) could you imagine where's the money (laughs) where's the money um anyway but so finally the teacher put a halt to it and that was what stopped the argument okay how did this come up anyways in a torah class well we were reading um that we're reading the book of david and uh or not the book of david the book of samuel with king david you know going about killing a bunch of people here left right and center and at some point there was some little part of the story that somehow one of the people in the class related to the natives And she said, well, look at the natives are doing. They're doing that same thing or whatever. And I can't think, I can't remember the specific line in the book of Samuel that she was referring to. But that's how she related it to this situation. And then all of them jumped in and started saying, yeah, and oh, she's just on a diet. And then we can't take this seriously and this kind of attitude, basically. That's interesting, even though... Obviously, you know, you didn't agree with what she was saying, but I still think it's kind of cool that current events would come up in a Torah study class. Uh, So trying to make like the text relevant to what's happening now. And it actually did. Somebody listened to your response. It did enable a discussion on current events in in the class. And that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not too sure that my intervention (laughs) made any difference to anybody else there. I, I felt good in the sense that, again, once again, I just felt that I had a, a moral obligation to speak up and to, you know, minimally say what my point of view was about this issue. Mm-hmm. And another thing that, you know, I was at synagogue and uh, the rabbi was talking about the, the, the um, part of the Torah that we were at for the weekly reading was the first book of the book of Exodus, which is Shemot. Mm-hmm. And it was all about Moses intervening in all of these situations, like daughters of Jericho and whatnot, you know, uh, basically defending the weaker party against the oppressor. Mm-hmm. And the rabbi gave this as an example that even if you're in a privileged position, which Moses was, I mean, he was in Egypt, he was in a pri- privileged position. He could have just said, hey, you know, this isn't my problem. You know, why should I bother with helping these people? Or later on with the Hebrew slaves, why should I get involved? You know, he could have easily had that kind of attitude, but he didn't. He had the exact opposite attitude, which again, was doing the right thing and getting involved. So the rabbi used that as an, as an example for all of us in our current lives mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, use that, his example, and, and get involved. And I thought, wow, this is good timing for me, <laughs> yeah. you know, because it's good to listen to. And also the Hebrew um, midwives, Shifra and Pua, who blatantly disobeyed the orders from the pharaoh, to mm-hmm. kill the firstborn Hebrew males in an act of civil disobedience. Right. And I thought, well, that's cool that these are, these are women doing it on top of it all. And the Idle No More movement was started by women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was neat, too, that he brought in the example of the midwives who were mm-hmm. sort of at the fir- front line of civil disobedience. Uh-huh. 
And I, I thought that was just very inspirational for me to hear that at that particular time. Mm. So where do you think Idle No More will go? Do you think it will continue to, to gather strength? What will happen with this movement? I'm not 100% sure about this, obviously. I think it could go a, a number of different ways, depending on what happens. Number one, if Teresa Spence, or by the way, Ray Robinson, who is the other hunger striker, he started his hunger strike 10 hours after she did. And he was originally from Manitoba, and he took the bus across the country, and now he's with her in Ottawa. And they're, they're together, and they're doing this together. So if either one of them should, you know, get seriously ill or die, be, I think it could explode. I think it could get quite dramatic in terms of, you know, we saw a little bit of it last week with blocking railways and blocking roads and whatnot. Uh, potentially, it could get even more heated in t if something would happen to either of these two individuals. On the other hand, it really... Depends. I mean, if, you know, a miracle happens and Harper and the governor general agree to, to meet with her, maybe the movement will have lived its purpose and, you know, will have some kind of positive result. It's, it's important symbolically, and that's for sure it would be an important symbolic gesture. Mm -hmm. But practically speaking, I wouldn't hold my breath about Stephen Harper actually doing something concretely that's going to respond to the cry that is there, which is basically to rescind Bill C-45. So chances are, I mean, it really could go in a number of different ways. And I mean, if they really see that the prime minister is not going to give the Idle No More movement what it's calling for, potentially it could you know, phase, phase out or fizzle out to a certain extent, but I am of absolute conviction that one day in our lives as a country, we have to deal with this issue seriously. And if we don't do it now, there's going to be another idol no more in three years and five years and 20 years or whatnot. It's going to come up again and again and again. And, you know, everybody thought that Oka was the worst thing or the siege of Ganasatagi was like the high point of how bad it can get. You know, uh, that, that was like 22 years ago. But nothing was resolved. Nothing fundamentally was resolved from that whole situation. So what happens? Here we are again, 22 years later, you know, with another situation on our hands. It, if it fizzles out for the time being, it will come up again. I think the fundamental issue is the effects of colonialism and not treating Aboriginal people as nations, which is what they, the treaties was a nation to nation relationship. Mm -hmm. It wasn't federal government to, you know, subservient uh, assembly of first nations or band council chief. It was nation to nation. And some uh, Aboriginal peoples don't have a treaty, right? Like some That's people right. have not even given their land to Canadians. That's right. So some, I didn't, I didn't realize this until now, which is what I find is the most important thing about this Idle No More movement is like the inspiration, encouragement, motivation to actually learn what the hell happened and, yeah. and the basics of the agreements. I didn't realize that some some land has never been given to Canada. That's right. There's a lot of unceded territory. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, getting back to my origins or where I'm originally from in Tawasan, British Columbia, yeah. my grandparents, uh, my father's side, were white settlers in that community in the early 1900s. 
and it was unceded territory of the Tawasan First Nation. And basically at that time, the BC government was not handing out land, but I'm sure that it was gotten at a pretty nice, affordable, cheap rate for white settlers coming into the area, of which my grandparents were beneficiaries of that. Mm -hmm. And now they have a park named after them and a street named after them and an avenue named after them in that little town. And so for me, there's also a personal history about you know, colonialism and white settlers coming in into these lands, like you say, in some cases, which are completely unseated. In an interview in the Globe and Mail this past summer, Robbie Robertson, who is part Mohawk and part Jewish, said, I always like to keep one hand in the teepee and the other hand in the synagogue. He, he commented, wouldn't it be great if there was a combination of the two? You could go to synagogue and it would be really hot in there. Um, So we're going to play a little bit of Robbie Robertson and be back with Sandy on Shtetl on the shortwave in a couple of minutes. This is Somewhere Down the Crazy River. You know where people play games with the night. God, it was too hot to sleep. I followed the sound of a jukebox coming from up the levee. All of a sudden I could hear somebody whistling from right behind me. I turned around and she said, Why do you always end up down at Nick's Cafe? I said, uh, I don't know. The wind just kind of pushed me this way. She said, Hang the rich.
Welcome back to Shtetl on the Shortwave. In this next clip, Sandy tells us about volunteering in Moose Factory, Ontario, where she lived with the chief and with one of Shtetl's all-time favorite guests. This was about maybe 15 years ago, more or less. There's a program run out of Toronto called Frontiers Foundation, and they have a specific project called Operation Beaver, which is kind <laughs> of a funny name. But And basically what happens is people volunteer to go up to um, northern communities, aboriginal communities, to help build houses in these communities. Because we all know the housing situation in a lot of these communities is pretty dire. So basically I ended up in Moose Factory, Ontario, which is on the mouth of James Bay. Okay. It was about a 14-hour train ride north of Toronto, basically going directly north. And the train uh, stopped in Moosonee, which is just on the mouth of James Bay. And then to get over to Moose Factory, we uh, had to take a boat, like a little... Okay. Yeah. And it's a Cree community. And I ended up living with the chief, Randy Small, and his wife, Winona LaDuke. (gasps) Really? Yes. Yes. And I knew Winona, and at that time she had a small child. Mm. And I I, I think they got divorced eventually, but um, I spent a few months up there. Mm. And uh, it was very interesting. It was just, again, a very eye-opening experience. What did you do up there? Like, you helped building, constructing homes? Yes, basically. Yeah, just repairing and constructing different homes, yeah. Why was it so eye-opening? Like, what did you see? Well, first of all... uh, just the isolation of it. Mm-hmm. Moose Factory, you know, is basically accessible by a, a boat. It's on an island. Mm-hmm. So you don't, not only do you have to take a 14-hour train ride north of Toronto, uh, where there's no roads going up to Moosonee, at least there wasn't at that time, and then after that taking a small boat to this island. So you get a real sense of, like, you know, we're, we're not near any major cities here. This is, like, really... Out in, the, out in the boonies, so to speak, you know? So that the isolation kind of hit me, you know, mm. because I hadn't experienced that. I'd always lived near a city. Mm-hmm. So for me, that was quite something to experience. Another thing, too, is that when I got on the train in Toronto, there was maybe one or two Aboriginal people on the train and the mixture of people, whatnot. By the time I got to Moosonee, 14 hours later, I was the only non-Aboriginal person on the train. Mm-hmm. And it was just this sense of being in a completely different world where you're the minority uh-huh. and uh, people were speaking in Cree a lot of them uh-huh. and of course I didn't understand a word of Cree and so it was like huh the shoes on the other foot a little bit here you know mm-hmm. what does it feel like to be the minority where you don't understand what's being said and you don't understand the name of the game in terms of you know people's mentality or whatnot mm-hmm. so it, it was very very interesting in that in that regard we're going to take a break and we'll be back on shtetl with ravid kahalani of yemen blues
Welcome back to Stadalon Shortwave. That was Steppenwolf with a classic about an Israeli rescue mission to Yemen. Uh, well, not exactly, but there was in 1949 a mission called Operation Magic Carpet that brought 49,000 people, almost the entire Jewish Yemenite population, to Israel, where Ravid Kahalani and his family live today. I spoke with Kahalani this summer before his show at the Rialto in Montreal, and in this next clip, Ravid tells us about his Yemenite identity. There is some people that cannot understand what is uh, an Arab Jew. Uh, I mean, all my family is coming from Yemen. And um, all my family, you know, is, there was, there were there were there living the life like anyone else. I mean, this is the culture, this is them, you know, they are Yemenite. <laughs> I have the culture of uh, like an, an Arabic culture, which is a Yemenite culture, which was a bit different from the Muslims, but then um, they talk the same language. And, uh, so you would consider yourself an Arab Jew? Yeah, I guess. I mean, Arab Jew, Yemenite Jew, it's, uh, it's Arabic culture. Yemenite culture, I mean some Yemenites came to Israel uh, already around the 20s and 30s. But my family and lots of other Yemenites um, had the, uh, uh, the magic carpet uh, operation and uh, they came to Israel uh, in 49. Actually lots of them lost their religion when they came to Israel because Israel uh, back then was uh, very chiloni, uh, I don't know how to... What does that mean, chiloni? is uh, non-religious. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah. Secular. Yeah. Actually, they wanted to make Israel like Europe. The, the Ashkenazis, uh, they weren't so much about culture. They were uh, about making it um, intellectual or something like that. And lots of Yemenites lost their culture because of that and uh, lost their religion and stuff like that. Did your family stay connected? And they, they stayed very connected. My and um, I, I grew up on a religious uh, Yemenite culture, which is lots of uh, singing and prayers in the synagogue and at home. And I have to say that this is something that gave me a lot from, for my singing. Yemenites also, also uh, stopped uh, playing on instruments since the, the second um, temple was like, ruined. They played uh, this uh, can, this can of olives, which is uh, very known uh, about Jewish Yemenites. And the why? Why did they stop playing instruments after? Because the they were they were uh, 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 griefing. Mourning. Yeah, about the second temple. The destruction of the second. Yes, wow. yes. But then they had this olive uh, olive can, and lots of Yemenite. Uh, music built on only for for many many years on drumming and singing. Does Yemen blues play the olive can? 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, one of the percussionists are using it sometimes okay. uh, in a different ways, you know, they're, then they use it uh, because there is a very specific way to use it. Um, but when a guy from Uruguay uh, doing it, so it's a bit different. <laughs> Musicians in Yemen blues are incredible performers, and Ravid is a wild dancer and singer. But is the music Yemenite? It's not uh, Yemenite music, so... It's not? No, it's not. It's all uh, influenced by lots of things. West African vibe, blues vibe. Um, it's, some of the songs are based on Yemenite uh, rhythms. Uh, Maybe two or three songs also based on uh, on Yemenite melodies, but it's all original. <laughs> Yeah. 
نفسرت ولا شي As an Israeli musician, I asked Ravid how he feels about being asked to comment on the political situation in the Middle East in most of his interviews. Before uh, politics or religion or color or anything else like that, people need to understand that we are all influenced by each other. We are coming from the same place, going to the same place. These days, I think that people are uh, making the bad news bigger and bigger. And I think uh, people need to, to focus on good things that are happening. I think you, that you can make a war only from talking about it. And you can see lots of people from all kinds of religion and colors and coming to a show and they don't understand the lyrics, they don't understand anything, but they connect to it at the same way to the bottom of their heart. And this is the true moment of, of humanity and not... Um, you know, dig into politics until you think that you have the right to kill, you know, because you can never, never kill for order. And, and I think this is, this is what 
people need to remember.
So that takes us to the end of the show. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back in two weeks with another killer episode of Shtetl on the Shortwave on CKUT. And uh, again, thank you to Sandy Sholema and to Ravid Kahalani. And hope you enjoyed the show. Shtetl on the short wave. Yeah. Shtetl on the short wave. Shtetl on the short wave. Yeah. You know short wave? No. Short wave radio? No. Like you can listen to it in the desert and you pick up. Ah, yeah? You know, like people did it many, many years ago when they didn't have radio. Nice. They would listen to short wave. Nice. Uh, All right. Um, let's try it. Shtetl from... Shtetl. Shtetl. On the short wave. Shtetl on the I short wave. I have it written down. Nice. No, okay. It's okay. Yeah? I'm Ravi Kahalani from Yemen Blues. You are listening to Shtetter on the short wave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Shtetl. 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 Okay, again. I'm Ravi Kahalani from Yemen Blues, and you are listening to Shmu again. <laughs> Shtetl? Yeah, it's Yiddish. Shtetl. 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 I'm Ravika Halani from Yemen Blues and you are listening to Shtetter on the short wave.